So that's what we would call a, a confessional song. It's a song where we declare together the things that we believe as God's people, the things that he has shown us in his word, and such a Christ-centric proclamation of why we have hope, because he is worthy. And if, um, and if you haven't read the book of Revelation, where it talks about how the scroll is brought forth in the throne room of God, and it is sealed with the seven seals of God, and God asks, he says, who is worthy to open this scroll? And there is silence in, in, in the heavenly places for an extended length of time. And then John, the apostle, begins to weep, just openly weep, because the things of God cannot be made known to man except through one who is worthy to open the scroll. And it's not until that moment when the lamb who was as slain came forward and was able to reveal the things of God to us. And that is, of course, Jesus Christ, the lion and the lamb. And so a, a wonderful song. Thank you, worship team, for learning that and for teaching it to us. I hope that you're blessed by that. Now, we've been talking about glorifying God inside marriage. We've been talking about glorifying God outside of marriage. It's only reasonable that Paul also addresses the topic of divorce. What happens when someone who at one point was married is married no longer? And so we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 16 today. And we're going to see specific instruction given here, both to believing couples and to believers who have a spouse who is not personally following after Jesus about the importance of keeping covenant. And so we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll be reading verses 10 through 16. This is what we'll be studying through today. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a, wife, a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the only unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's bow in a word of prayer and thank the Lord God for this message and ask that he would help us to understand it rightly. Lord God, thank you for your word. We believe it to be an eternal proclamation of what you desire for your people, and we are grateful to receive it here this morning. Marriage, we know, Lord God, can be one of the greatest joys of life, and yet a marriage that falls apart can also be a great disappointment in life. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to think rightly about these delicate things, these promises that we make, to one another. I pray, Lord God, that the promise of the covenant of marriage would truly be in your church a reflection of the great promise that you make to your people. We are grateful for your love, for the steadfast nature of your promises. We're grateful that you are unwavering as our King, Lord, that we can always constantly trust you, that you do not change your mind or relent. And so we thank you, Lord God, that we can put our full confidence that the foundation that our faith is built upon is a sure foundation. It is not shifting sand. We do exist for more than marriage, Lord God. We exist to glorify and to honor you. But if you have ordained for us to enter into the covenant of marriage, we ask that we would do that according to your will and by the strength of your perfect power. We love you, God, and thank you for what we're discussing this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. So the passage that we're looking at can be broken down into two sections. Verses 10 and 11 address the more conventional situation that is found in churches, which is two Christians who are to handle their marriage covenant with one another. And then as we progress into verses 12 through 16, we're going to deal with the slightly more complicated issue of how a Christian should uphold their marriage covenant if they are married to someone who is not following after Jesus. And so Paul starts with an interesting editorial note here. The instruction that he gives to married couples did not originate with Paul himself. 
He says, to the married, I give this charge. And then he says, and it's probably in parentheses in your translation, it says, not I, but the Lord. What does that mean? It might seem a little unnecessary for him to say something like that, if you think about it, because Paul is doing here in verses 10 and 11 what he always does. He's sharing with the church the message that God has made clear to him through Christ. Paul is not a rogue spiritual guru who's living life as he seems fit and has put together a philosophy that seems to work really well. So now he's going around trying to persuade as many others as he can to follow after his personal methods. That's not Paul's agenda whatsoever. Paul is a disciple, and he is a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so all that Paul has to give to others is that which Jesus has given to Paul. So when Paul says later in, in chapter 11, verse 1, when he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, he's honestly confessing that his way of life doesn't originate in his own wisdom. It's not the, pro, uh, the, the, uh, the product of his own thought. It's not his own philosophy on how to live. He wants only to help others to see the will of Jesus for a believer. And so with that in mind, the command that he's about to give regarding marriage and regarding divorce as well, is a command that they should have already heard before. These are literally the referenced words of Jesus. He's saying these are things that Christ has specifically given to us in his earthly ministry here. It's not a new revelation. In fact, Paul likely showed them Christ's teaching on this matter when he planted the church in Corinth along with some other brothers. And as, as he prepared men to lead it well. And here is that instruction. For couples who are Christians, God's word is very clear. If you are married, do not divorce. Do not divorce. Now, this is not ignorant of the fact that marriage can be difficult. It's not ignorant of the fact that marriage at sometimes can be a very deep trial in our lives. But if you are both calling upon the name of God, any trial, any difficulty that you face can be overcome in the Lord. So if you are a Christian couple and you are married, then do not divorce. We need to understand as a people, specifically as God's people, and then as a nation, as a world, we need to understand that marriage is a moral matter. It is not an issue of prudence or convenience. Am I happy? Is this marriage beneficial to me? Is this union helping me to get what I want out of life? Do I still feel the same way about my spouse as I did when we entered into this marriage to begin with? These are the typical diagnostic questions that one asks themselves when they're considering whether they should stay in the covenant of marriage or not. Irreconcilable differences is the most common reason, in America at least, why so many people break their marriage covenant today. But irreconcilable differences are not relevant to the Christian's reckoning of whether they should stay in the covenant. Indeed, all issues are reconcilable in Christ, are they not? By God's instruction, marriage is a lifelong commitment. And so this is not a small matter. So thinking back last week when the last words that we heard from Paul was that it is better to marry than to burn with passion, we should not take that instruction lightly. We should not take that to mean that just marry any old person as long as it keeps you out of fornication and it keeps you out of the brothels and it keeps you out of other ways that people would commit sexual immorality back in those days. Just marry, get married. It doesn't matter to who. That's not what Paul is pushing at here. Marriage vows are serious. They've got to be made carefully because if we cast those vows aside, we have to answer to God for that. When Jesus was engaged in his earthly ministry, he was asked about divorce. He gave clear instruction to his disciples. He rooted his ruling in the seventh commandment. Remember the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Mark 10, verses 11 through 12 are the words of Christ. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, a violation of the seventh commandment. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Adultery. We see this also again in Matthew 19.9. We see it in Luke 16.18. So Jesus' opposition to divorce is linked to his respect for the commands of Yahweh, the God, the God that we are to worship. Thou shalt not commit adultery. 
The marriage covenant is a pledge to live side by side with someone for the remainder of your time here on earth and to give access to one's own body that no one else is privileged to. In another instance, Jesus said this. This is from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. It was also said, according to Jesus, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's quoting Deuteronomy 24.1, where it is acknowledged there as a concession that there are times when divorce does occur in the covenant community. Verse 32, but I, Jesus, say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Friends, marriage is not always easy. It is the joining of two distinct personalities, both of which suffer from the inherited burden of Adam's failure. We are sinners by nature. Married people, Christians or not, are two sinners trying to live in the harmony of God. So marriage will come with its great challenges. It requires patience. It demands self-sacrifice. We must be generous and, and, and willing to listen. We must be willing to think of others' needs above our own if marriage is going to survive. It requires forgiveness and grace. It requires faithfulness and trust. And while divorce is not the unforgivable sin and is even permissible in the event that a husband or a wife violates the marriage covenant by committing adultery, the shattering of a marriage covenant is never pleasing to God. In Malachi 2.16, the prophet declares that God hates divorce. Why would such strong language be used? Because God himself is a covenant-keeping being. Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God's promises are always sure. And if we being made in his image are to reflect the goodness of God, then we too should be keepers of promises. In God there is no variation or shadow of turning. What we see is what we get of God. Isn't this one of the most admirable and praiseworthy aspects of his nature? Are we not inclined to praise him this morning, to lift up his great name because he does all that he says that he will do? That same passage in Malachi tells us that God is seeking godly offspring, meaning that he desires men and women who are made in his image to live in a way that reflects the unique holiness of God. He wants his light to reflect in the lives of those who call upon his name. He keeps his promises. As his people, we should keep our promises too. Our yes must be yes, and our no must be no. And so a marriage is nothing if it is not a covenant. It is a set of vows that two people make to live in a certain kind of partnership that entails both blessings and responsibilities. And that promise is framed in such a way that is to be carried out until the death of, of one of its parties. And so divorce is not just a solution to a practical problem. Divorce is sin. Now, to increase our understanding of what it means to sin in that way, is divorce a perpetual sin? What I mean by that is, if someone commits the sin of divorce, are they then living in an ongoing state of rebellion against God? Are they to be commanded to reconcile with their spouse? And is church discipline to fall upon that individual unless they return to their husband or wife? Now, based on the instruction that Paul gives here, it would seem that that is not the case. That one who divorces has broken God's law, but they are not in a state of perpetual sin against him. The woman in this example who does divorce is not exiled from the church, is she? She is given further instruction on how to live in this new state. 1 Corinthians 7.11 But if she does, meaning if she does divorce, then she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So, if she does go down that route, if she breaks herself off from her husband, or vice versa, if a husband does the same, then they are to remain as single from that point forward. If a person breaks their covenant, they can be forgiven. They can continue to be a part of the covenant community of the church. But the seventh commandment 
you shall not commit adultery, is still in effect and has to be honored. If that divorce cannot live, that divorcee cannot live with, with their original spouse, then they must at least refuse to join their body with another so long as their first spouse is alive. If they were to do so, they would be guilty of adultery and subject to church discipline. That would be an ongoing sin. Now, the exception to this rule would be what Jesus declared in Mark 5.32. The only legitimate cause for divorce is the case of gross sexual immorality that makes a mockery of the marriage covenant itself. When a partner violates the covenant of marriage in such a way and refuses to repent of it, is unfaithful to their husband or unfaithful to their wife, and this is something that just keeps going on, and they're not sorry about it, they're not turning away from it, then the offended spouse is free at that point to separate and to be married to another. So we see a mysterious manifestation of these principles in the way that God deals with his own covenant people. In the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 3, this idea of faithfulness and fidelity is discussed. The prophet Jeremiah says that if a marriage dissolves and the wife joined herself with another man, he asks, would the first husband take her back? And the answer is, no, she wouldn't. That would be unthinkable. She would be unclean, right? And then he goes on to explain that in such a way, Israel had acted like a harlot to God, their father. Israel, though betrothed to God in heaven, though a special people set aside for him, had worshipped other false gods. Israel had given their holy, worshipful love to the wrong source. Essentially, Israel had committed adultery against Yahweh. It would have been completely reasonable for God to reject Israel forever based on the violation of that covenant, based on unfaithfulness. But in Jeremiah 3.12... God goes on to offer the unthinkable to his unfaithful bride. He beckons faithless Israel to repent and to return to him, even though they had violated the covenant in such gross ways. And he promises that if she would do this, he will love her again. Does all of Israel repent and become reconciled to God? Sadly, no, they do not. But those who do are not only forgiven... They are washed clean by the sacrifice that Jesus would later make at Calvary. Their holiness restored by God's great work. And the Gentiles, what of them? A people who were not a people, who were not originally Israel, are now allowed to enter into the covenant with God as well by faith. Those who trust in Jesus are washed clean and grafted into the covenant, joined forever to God as true spiritual Israel. So in all regards, friends, the marriage bed is to be kept holy and respect for marriage is to be protected. But marriage was made for man, not man for marriage. So we must be careful that we don't dehumanize a brother or sister who has made this kind of covenant error. Divorce is not an unforgivable sin. And one who is repentant and listens to the direction of God and keeping themselves from adultery should be received with grace. If you divorce, brothers and sisters, do not remarry. To remarry is to add sin to sin because it causes someone engaged in sexual relations outside of the original marriage covenant that might have been dissolved in a legal sense but which still exists in God's evaluation of the covenant. So verses 10 through 12 applied to two believers who committed to one another in marriage. But that scenario doesn't describe all the Corinthians who are receiving this letter. Many of these Corinthian believers were saved as adults. They did not grow up in the Jewish tradition. They were raised in irreligious and idolatrous homes. Having already progressed partway through life, the rest here in verse 12 refers to those who were called by God to salvation, but were called while they were already in a covenant marriage with somebody who does not trust in Jesus Christ. They're married to non-believers now. Verse 12 contains another clarification about the source of of the wisdom. Paul says here, to the rest I say, not the Lord. Now this has, this has been misconstrued uh, for a long time. Many people read that and they think, okay, well this must be something less than inspired scripture then. This is no longer the words of Jesus. This is just Paul's opinion. And please, if somebody has taught you that in the past, erase that thought from your mind. All of God's word is God-breathed. All of it is from Christ, and we trust it because it is not from these apostles or these prophets 
personally. It is through them, by the Lord God. So when Paul says here, to the rest I say, not the Lord, what he is saying is, this is not a quotation from something you already received from Christ. It is from Christ, but it is, it is new information. Information that applies to you here and now. These are technically Christ's words, but they are delivered through the apostle. They're not found in a, in a gospel that they had already maybe had as a scroll. They are given by the apostle Paul. And so the instructions found in 12 through 16 are not a direct quote of Jesus. But they are still nevertheless Jesus' instructions. That's, that's all Paul has to give to them, remember? Paul's not around spouting his own ideas or philosophies. He is an agent used by God. His work is to proclaim to the people what Christ has proclaimed to him. We, we see in other uh, places in the Corinthian letter this concept of Paul's utter dependence on God's wisdom. Chapter 7, verse 40 Paul says, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. In other words, what he was saying in that passage as he, he gives information to the Corinthians that will bless them and help them, he's saying, I too have the Spirit of God. In other words, I am speaking right now on behalf of the Lord God. He has given me these words to share with you. You have seen God's work in me. I'm simply giving to you what God is doing in my life. Again, in verse 37 of chapter 14, which we haven't gotten to yet, and we won't for many, many moons. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. See, Paul understood the inspiration of Scripture. Later on, Peter acknowledges that the writings of Paul are Scripture, just as the writings of Peter were. And so these are not Paul's special little subtext. This is, not a, this is not a footnote that you can choose to either acknowledge or disregard. These are the words of the Lord too. And here comes a new scenario to us. The exception, not the rule. You were married, then you got saved. Now you're dwelling with an unbeliever. What do you do? How do you handle yourselves? Now we know something about the Corinthian church. We know that there was a letter that they wrote to Paul sometime before this letter was written. And in that letter, there were a number of questions and ideas put forth that Paul is either answering or having to correct now in this letter so that they will be more in line with the things of God. It's quite possible that some in Corinth were saying that because I don't want to be sexually immoral and pure, I think it would be best for me to divorce my unbelieving husband or my unbelieving wife. And so he's speaking directly to their situation. But in doing so, he also sets precedents that will help us to understand covenant marriage today. Why is it even an issue to be married to a non-believer? In 2 Corinthians 6.14, the Apostle Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The covenant of marriage is a holy covenant. So when a believer seeks a spouse, they are not to just open up their their eyes to every person who's available and single who might pay them attention or might be attractive to them or might have similar interests in, in life, but they are to limit their search to those who love Christ first and best. Those are the people that Christians should be trying to marry in this life. Think about how sincerely selfish it is as a Christian to try to marry someone who doesn't know Jesus. What are you giving of yourself to them? If I am a believer and Christ is my all in all, my whole life has been reoriented to the cross. Everything that is important to me, everything that matters to me is based on the person and the work of Jesus. How could I hope to join myself to someone who does not acknowledge that Jesus to someone who doesn't follow that Jesus and respect that Jesus, to someone whose life is also not in the hands of that Jesus. The scripture tells us that the word of God is like foolishness to the wisest of the wise if they do not have the Holy Spirit. So essentially, if you're trying to marry someone who is not a believer, Christian, do not do them that disservice. You're only giving them a fraction of who you are. You're not fully available for them because they can't know you. They are not spiritually alive yet. So Paul has made it very clear that to willfully engage in a marriage covenant with somebody who knows not your God, that is not only foolish, it is wrong. But nevertheless, we have this scenario. Believer married to unbeliever. 
Sometimes a person will marry somebody thinking they are a believer and then later on the truth comes out and they realize this person doesn't have a true relationship with Christ. It was a profession in, in word only, but not in deed. So what do these people do? How do they handle themselves in those situations? Their conversion, or some in Corinth, in Corinth whose conversion came after their marriage needed some answers. What should that converted man or woman do to remain faithful to God's command? So Paul's instruction seeks to preserve the integrity of the marriage covenant and the testimony of the believer in that mixed marriage. If married to an unbeliever, Paul says, do not divorce him so long as he consents to live with you. In other words, whether to stay married or not is not particularly contingent upon you. It is contingent upon the unbelieving spouse. The same instruction applies for a woman who is married to a non-believer. In the Hebrew tradition, a man could divorce his wife, but a wife could not divorce her husband. That wasn't the case in the Roman culture. In Corinth, it was perfectly legal for a wife to declare herself divorced from her husband and to separate from him. And so Paul has to speak to that cultural environment. Now, with the remainder of our time, I, I, what I want us to consider are three good reasons why Paul does not instruct the saints to simply cut their losses and divorce that unbeliever. Some would argue, man, you'd be better off with a believer, and, and that might be so. But Paul is saying, no, endure in that covenant. Love them the best that you possibly can in Christ. In so much as they want to stay with you, stay with them. Here's the first reason why Paul gives that instruction. Covenant promises are important. They're important. Even if the parties of the promise are not both particularly honorable. If a covenant is made, a covenant should be honored. Christians are called after the name of their Savior. They bear a representative responsibility. Their actions reflect on the character of the God who they worship. If believers make promises, and then believers go off and break those promises, then those who do not know God in a reconciled sense will get the wrong impression that truth and that integrity are not really important to God. Because those things are obviously not important to their followers if they are breaking their covenants. On the contrary, we should show integrity that we don't even need to make vows. Our yes is consistently yes. Our no is so consistently no that we don't have to make exorbitant promises or get into covenants when not necessary. We should hope that people should expect nothing less from Christians than that they should do what they say they're going to do. What better place to display that than in the framework of the covenant of marriage? It is a sad reality, friends, that the church is often content to adapt the moral mentality of the world that it is posi positioned in rather than set the tone and live according to the word of God no matter what. Christians too often adapt that faulty notion that we can, only expect, we can only expect ourselves to behave in godly ways if the other person that we're interacting with is also behaving in an honorable way. I was civil. I tried to be good until they stopped being civil. And at that point, all bets are off, right? You can't expect me to be loving if the other person's not loving to me. You can't expect me to be honest if the other person's lying through their teeth. You can't expect me to fight fair if their gloves are off, right? Christian, the answer to that is wrong. That kind of reasoning is just an excuse to sin. If you have the Holy Spirit of God, there is an influence within you that should exponentially outweigh any influence that you encounter outside of you. Even the influence of your non-believing spouse. When it comes to moral obedience to the Scripture, you don't need to have a world-class partner to be a good dancer. Simply trust in the, the Lord. Listen to the rhythm of His truth. Even if your spouse is not on board with Christ, as you persist in that marriage, you can show your spouse and the world around you who is watching your marriage what faithful and godly love looks like. That is one of the reasons why Paul urges us to stay within these, these imperfect covenants. Because covenants themselves carry great weight with the Lord. And if we have made a covenant, we should do everything we can within our power to keep that covenant. Secondly, the Lord in His sovereignty has allowed the course of our lives to play out the way that it has. God Himself may well intend to use the believing spouse as an agent to share 
his gospel to that unbelieving husband or wife. Think about this. Could God have saved you before you married a non-Christian? Absolutely, he could have. The fact that he did not should make you consider why. Why were you not saved at a young age before you ran into this person and got into a covenant marriage with him? You don't necessarily have the answers to that. But is it possible that the Lord God has brought the two of you together and then saved you so that in some way God might either display true faithfulness in the way that you love your unbelieving spouse or perhaps he might even show the gospel in such a powerful way in the way that you live and speak and believe that your spouse might see that and the spirit might work in concert with the testimony that you show to save your unbelieving spouse. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2 speaks to this as well. Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, speaking to those who are following non-believers or those who are maybe just believers in word but not in deed, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. If this is your situation, you have been trusted with the responsibility to show the nobility of sacrificial love within marriage, even to one who does not know how to show it back. Marriage, remember, is not fundamentally a way for you to get what you think you need in order to be happy. God doesn't gift us with marriage because he is somehow unable to give us what a spouse could give us. That is not why he gifted us with marriage. In fact, the idea that God is somehow lacking something that another sinful human can give us that he can't, that's a ridiculous notion. We have everything that we need in Christ Jesus, my friends. So marriage is not the key to your happiness. Rather, it is a reflection of the heavenward relationship which has already provided you with everything you need to be happy. <coughs> Next week, we're going to... Uh, address in the, in the word that is preached. Pastor Paul is going to be filling the pulpit next week. We're going to be addressing the idea of wanting to move forward. People by nature always want to improve their station. They want to move up. Sometimes this is masked even as a holy discontent. I've got a, an honorable desire to be more than I am today. We have a spiritual defense to this idea. We should learn to be content in all circumstances. Even if those circumstances mean you're married to someone who doesn't share your love for the Lord, you can find happiness in Christ within that imperfect union. And here's the third reason why Paul urges those who are believers married to a non-believer to not break that covenant. The faith of a believing spouse has a kind of sanctifying effect on the unbelieving spouse. And in fact, it has that kind of effect on the children of that union as well. It was very important for Paul to clarify this point. As the Old Testament describes several examples where unclean things that come in contact with holy things defile them and make them useless for holy purposes. Paul actually has already spoken of the horror of a believing, of a believing Christian uniting their physical body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, remember, with the morally unclean body of a prostitute. It was, it was shocking when he said, should that happen within the covenant of God? But we see a significant shift in this new covenant era. Jesus, the holy son of God, took on human flesh. He came to live in a defiled world. He came to live side by side with sinful people like us. Did this strip Jesus of his holiness? When he became incarnate and lived with us, did his proximity to people like us broken sinners, did it make him less holy? It certainly did not. In fact, as Jesus walked faithfully through his years on earth, we see again and again that the opposite was actually true. Rather than being tainted by the world, Jesus had a sanctifying effect on those whom he drew near to. <coughs> a leprous man is spoken of in the first chapter of Mark. You might be aware of the fact that leprosy was very common in the days of Christ. And we see in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament record, various instructions on how a leprous person, because of the contagiousness of their 
condition was to be set apart. They weren't to be integrated fully into society. They had to live in outward communities. They had to declare themselves as unclean when they would walk through the streets to try to preserve the health of the healthy. And so in Mark chapter 1, a leprous man, one who had this skin disease, this outwardly uh, dangerous disease, came to Jesus and confessed to him, saying, If you are willing, Jesus, you can make me clean. Jesus was moved by pity for the man. But what followed must have surprised those who were witnessing the interaction. Jesus did not speak a blessing over him and send him on his way. Jesus didn't shout out and declare that virus must leave his body. Jesus reached out his hand. He reached out his hand and touched that man. He came into physical contact which that with that which had been declared unclean. I will it be clean, said Jesus. And in that personal touch, the sickness of the leper did not cast a shadow on the holiness of Christ. Rather, the holiness of Jesus made a defiled man clean. A woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years was ostracized from the community. She was considered perpetually unclean and unable to go and worship God at the temple. Seeing a crowd forming around Jesus, she took a chance. She pushed forward into that crowd, hoping no one would notice her there. She wanted to draw near to Christ. And without a word, as she, she became within arm's distance, she reached out and she touched the hem of Jesus' cloak. Under normal circumstances, that would have rendered Jesus legally unclean himself. But power went out from him when she touched him, healing her of her disorder. <coughs> The woman had faith and was made well and clean by the power that was in Christ. <coughs> Later, Jesus takes the hand of a little girl who lay dead on her bed. A mother and father in mourning at their little one, lifeless because of a sickness that had taken her. Jesus takes her hand in his hand. Rather than being made unclean by touching this lifeless little one, he tells her to get up. He makes her alive. Do you see the difference here, friends? In Christ, there is power to overcome the darkness of this unclean world. Jesus is able to make holy what is otherwise clean in some mysterious way that we don't totally understand. With the advent of Christ's earthly ministry, we are able at times to see that the light is more powerful than the darkness and can have a sanctifying effect on those who are around us, even if they don't believe in Christ. This does not, let me clarify, this does not necessarily equate to salvation for these people. There is only one means of salvation, isn't there, church? We come to salvation only when we see the ugliness of our personal sin. When we see that ugliness and we stop trying to justify it. We stop trying to push back against God and convince Him that we're actually holy when we're not when we see that sin and the way that it separates us from the holiness of God and we understand that apart from God we have separated ourselves from the source of life, when we see that all of our good works and every deed that we've ever done and every profession of faith that we make, if it is not rooted in Jesus Christ and His perfect work, it's like nothing. When we are humbled to know that we cannot save ourselves and we put our faith and trust in what God did through His Son, that's when we're saved. You're not saved because your grandma loves you and has been praying for you for your whole life. Although that might impact the situation. And many of you are sitting here today saved and can thank grandma for all those prayers. It took a while, but she got to see the fruit of that, right? You're not saved because you grew up around a whole bunch of faithful people in your home. Because you're a PK. Or because you have heard the gospel so many times you could almost repeat it verbatim. Exposure to holy people doesn't save you. But what a blessing it is to be around people who truly know the Lord God in a personal way. So this is not a saving sanctification, but it is not insignificant. It has practical implications both for the lost person and for the sanctifying believer who lives with them. If Paul isn't talking about saving sanctification here, then why does he use the word sanctification? Why does he use the word holy? Two words that we typically associate with salvation. How do we know that the children and the spouse of a believer are not saved just because their spouse or their mom is saved? We know it. 
because the text itself provides the answer. In verse 16, Paul indicates that it is plausible for an unbelieving spouse. Thank you so much, Silas. For an unbelieving spouse. Let me get a drink of this real quick. It is possible for an unbelieving spouse to come to faith via the influence of their Christian partner. That verse would be pointless if an unsaved person automatically is holy in a saved sense when they marry a Christian. Does that make sense? So being married to a believer doesn't make you saved. But the promise of Scripture nevertheless is true. God can use you in a way to sanctify them. It's not a saving sanctification. Now remember, a prime theme of 1 Corinthians is that the church is to live as holy, as sanctified, in the midst of an unholy culture. Be what you are, not what you were. Corinth was a very sinful place. And many of these believers in the Corinthian church had lived very sinful lives before they were redeemed. And many of them had some echoes of that old sinfulness and rebellion in the way that they were living their lives out now, even though they had been saved. And so the Apostle Paul's writing back to Corinth and he's urging these believers, don't let the ways of the world dictate how you act. Live according to the salvation that has been brought into your life through the Spirit. So it is supremely important that Paul speak to this dilemma because these Corinthians needed to learn to be set apart from the unbelieving world. Does an unbelieving spouse prevent the believing husband or wife from being sanctified? And the answer is a resounding no. You are not defiled by the rebellion that your husband or your wife is living in. Likewise, you are not defiled by the disobedient rebellion even of your children. Nor are those children of a mixed marriage, believer and non-believer, nor are they to be given some kind of a half-holy status, such as the Samaritans were sometimes viewed with. They are to be a member of the covenant community and treated as holy and sanctified by their parents, not saved by their parents' faith, but able to interact with the covenant community and be a part of what is going on in God's church. Are there times when the influence of a spouse can indeed defile? Not unless we refuse to obey the word of God above all else. And when we do, that's my sin. When I allow somebody else's behavior or action to cause me to sin, that's on me. That's not on them. If someone is influencing you to sin, refuse. Stand firm in the faith. Remember 1 John 4.4 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's different from the message today, right? The message in our culture today is, whatever is in you, the you that is in you is greater than the world, and you can overcome anything. And yet John, the apostle, sweetly and truthfully declares a greater truth. Greater is he who is in you. Greater is Christ who is in you than he, the enemy, who is in the world. Jesus Christ who fills you and indwells you and empowers you and gives you patience and endurance is greater than any influence you will see outside of yourself. So determine to use that overcoming power that is within you to shine the light of Christ in your home. The unbelieving partner is not automatically redeemed by the faith of their believing spouse, but Christ working in their Christian spouse prevents that person's unforgiven sin from corrupting the Christian spouse and even that household. In what ways is the unbelieving spouse made holy themselves? We can look to Romans 11 for a strong explanation of this. In Romans chapter 11, Paul is brokenhearted. He thinks of his fellow believers, or his fellow Jews rather, the nation of Israel. And he thinks about how so many of them, having seen Jesus, have rejected him as Messiah. So he is sad for Israel. He's sad for his countrymen. They have largely said no to the work that Jesus has done, even though they have been waiting for that Messiah for generations. Are they rejected forever? Paul seeks to answer that question. And he says, not necessarily. Romans eleven sixteen, He says, if the dough, and in speaking of the dough, he's speaking of the Jews, offered as first fruits is holy, then so is the whole lump, speaking of the unbelieving Jews in the days of Paul, so is the whole lump holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. What Paul is saying here is that God has chosen to use Israel over the course of generations. He has made a covenant with them. He has used them to bless the world and to show who he is to the nations. 
Just because these Israelites in that day were rejecting Jesus, that didn't mean that they were hopeless. There was still a sense of sanctity to the people, even though they were rejecting Messiah. There was still a gospel surrounding them. There was still truth within their communities. The Old Testament was not erased from their being. So there was still hope that they might one day believe. So too, do the unbelieving spouse and children of a Christian have a unique kind of holiness that others don't enjoy because of their connection to one of God's covenant sons or daughters. They are every day exposed to the witness of a believer. What did 6.19 teach us about our body in 1 Corinthians 6? For the Christian, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? For the spouse, they are for the unbelieving spouse, they are cleared access to the temple. Even though in the Old Testament tradition, a non-believer could not enter into the temple. An unbeliever could not present sacrifices in the temple. And yet, the body of the believing spouse married to an unbeliever is not off-limits to that unbelieving spouse. So therefore, sexual relationships, as just discussed in the early part of this chapter, were then holy in the eyes of God, thanks to the covenant. Whereas in the past, Israelites would not share a meal with a non-Jewish person. Here a Christian can sit at the table with their family, even though their husband doesn't believe or their wife doesn't believe, despite the fact that some of those children had rejected Jesus, they can still have fellowship with them. By honoring their commitment to love that person in covenant, their interaction was as worship to the Lord. And by proxy, that unbelieving family member will enjoy significant interaction with God's church, as their believing loved one lives in covenant with other believers in the local church. They'll be exposed to what the church is doing, the good things that surround the Great Commission. So are you married to a non-believer? That will come with challenges if you are. It will not be as spiritually beneficial to you as a marriage to a confessing Christian would be. A person who loves your God first and honors the Word of God. But it is not to be understood as a prison sentence. Do not fear that it renders you unable to be holy in the eyes of God. Do not fear that it somehow cancels out your holiness. Christ in you translates to hope for them. In fact, it is possible that God might use the contrast of your redeemed life as a way of showing that spouse their need for Jesus. That is not always the case. And in fact, Paul knows that there are times when the light of Christ will be perceived as a distance too great for the unbelieving spouse. Sometimes shining the light of Christ in the marriage that is mixed will cause the unbelieving spouse to become bitter towards the believer and they will do all they can to push that believer away. If they do indeed reject that covenant and abandon the believer, then you are free to leave that covenant. God has given you a reprieve from that. Now, one of the difficult questions of this passage is, once an unbelieving spouse leaves a believing spouse, is, that remarriage, or is, that, is remarriage now an option for that believer who is divorced? I admit that the word is inconclusive regarding this. Pastors who I respect have drawn different conclusions on both sides of the aisle, but I believe the language that Paul uses here indicates that when a non-believing spouse chooses to leave, that the believing spouse is set free from the original covenant. And the, the language is as such, this believer is no longer, what the ESV says is enslaved. But I don't think that is a great translation of the word, even though that's the correct root. It's speaking about being no longer bound. No longer bound in a legal sense. No longer tied to that unbelieving spouse that, that they tried to live in covenant with. That they did everything that they could to love and to care for and to stay faithful to. If the unbeliever leaves, then the binding of that covenant is no longer relevant to the person. And then he goes on to say to them, be at peace. Do not let the matter grieve you. To remarry is not necessary for us to be at peace, is it? But in other parts of this chapter, Paul is going to say if somebody is restless in, as a widow, their, their mar marriage has been dissolved by death, their partner has passed away, if they cannot stave off, the desires of the flesh, that it would be better for them to live at, at, with a married spouse, to remarry so that they might be at peace and not have to fight that battle every day. So normally the boundaries of marriage covenant extend until death do us part, don't they? But to be fair, when a person trusts in Christ, a death of some kind has occurred, hasn't it? The life that was defined by rebellion 
The life that was full of sin and ignorant to God has been laid to rest, and a new person has arisen in its place. However, to leave is not the decision of the believing spouse, except in the case of adultery. It is the prerogative of the unredeemed spouse whether to leave or to stay, and if they choose to stay, then do not be dismayed in that. The challenges of unequal yoking may remain, but so too will remain the opportunity that God has given to you to show the gospel to your spouse day in and day out in a way that you love them and the way that you serve them. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The truth of the matter is we don't know, do we? You don't know whether your persistence in that marriage would have resulted in your unbelieving spouse becoming a believer. That kind of knowledge belongs to God alone, but it could have. And every year you spend in covenant marriage with someone who doesn't count Christ as their king is a year that they have been privy to God's work in you. It's another year that they have heard you praying. It's another year that they've seen you with your Bible open, pouring in the words of truth into your heart. It's another year that they have had the chance to see true discipleship bear significant fruit in your life. Rejoice in the opportunity to practice evangelism on a daily basis. And that with the person that you have love for. That with the person who is probably the father or the mother of the children that you have together. This shouldn't be a nonstop barrage of evangelism, by the way. 1 Peter 3.1, as we remember, tells us that even without a word, we might be able to win an unbelieving spouse over. So it's not every day waking up and preaching the gospel from morning to night. There must be some, some uh, discretion in the way that we share our testimony with our unbelieving spouse. But rather, we should live a normal Christian life, a Christ-centered priority in our lives, and Christ-like humility with sacrificial love as Christ has for His church. And in doing so, uh, fortunately, and, and praise God, we often see that result in a change. There are things you will be able to control in life. Do not pretend that you can control those things. Instead, acknowledge the sovereignty of God and be faithful in what you can affect. Let's close our eyes and pray. Thank the Lord for this message. God, we thank you for your grace and ask that you would continue to help us work carefully through these difficult passages. Help us not be burdened by the normal ways of the world. We carry sometimes into a service like this a lot of cultural tradition, a lot of expectation from the secular society that we live in that can shadow the way we look at Scripture, God. But let us lay those things to the side. Father, please just speak plainly to us through your word and let it be the only standard of life and conduct by which we base our actions. Father, we know that you are the most important relationship in our life, but you're not the only relationship. And so God, give us the strength and the grace to be loving to our spouses. Help us to keep our promises to one another, Lord God, knowing all the while that you have kept the most important promise to us. We are grateful for your son Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord God, that all things would glorify you, even our obedience to this text. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.